I think I am something, but I need to prove that to myself. I'm proving that I am who I think I am. Someone emailed me saying they crawled through the bins of Yo Sushi to find out who made this dessert for them because they knew they didn't make them in-house. That's a pretty crazy story. You can't, you can't make that up. And then I said a billion and pe people laughed. And, and at some point I said, you know what, you, you, you aim low again. Welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and as you can hear, today's episode is a special one because it's our 200th episode. Now, when we started this podcast back in 2017, I didn't think we'd end up here, so it really is a milestone I'm very, very proud of. Now, we started Secret Leaders in part because I wanted to learn from other entrepreneurs, and that's turned out to be a good bet. So, today I want to take you through the interviews that have had the biggest impact on me. Now, there are lots to choose from. I've talked to over 50 unicorn founders. I've had on household names like Monzo, Slack, Duolingo, Brewdog, LastMinute.com, and I've heard some amazing personal and business stories. Among those you're going to hear today are Jo Malone on the biggest regret of her life, Trini Woodall being brutally honest about money, and the founder of Eve Sleep, Kuba, on what happened when he sacrificed his mental health for company growth. All those interviews taught me invaluable lessons that I just can't wait to share with you today. Now, first off, I'm going to bring you one of the very first interviews we did all the way back in 2017 with someone who'd go on to become a national star, a celebrity, really. Welcome to the Secret Lives of Leaders podcast, the podcast that takes you through interviews with some of the most interesting and inspiring entrepreneurial figures in the UK and some of the ecosystem supporters around it. And this week we have I guess like every week, a special guest. We have the 24-year-old entrepreneur, blogger, vlogger, uh, angel investor, and motivational speaker that is Stephen Bartlett. So okay, okay, enough of that. As you can tell, the podcast changed quite a bit since then. And as you might have noticed, we used to be called The Secret Lives of Leaders, which makes more sense, but it just took a bit longer to type. And then when we cut to Secret Leaders, we started to get a lot more traction. That was me introducing our seventh ever guest, Stephen Bartlett. Now, he is an investor, founder, recent addition to Dragon's Den, and host of the incredible podcast Diary of a CEO, which he started after we did this interview, a while later. I wonder if he got any tips from me. I've known Steve for coming up to 10 years. Grabble, my first proper business, my, my first proper startup with funding, etc., was Social Chain's first client, pretty much. Now, back in 2017, we were chatting and I told him I was doing this podcast and he said he's never done a podcast before. I'd love to come on and be a guest. So this was his first ever podcast interview. And I take quite a bit of pride in that, especially as he's gone on to absolutely nail podcasting ever since. I think it's fair to say the student has surpassed the teacher. And Steve is really a dream interviewee as well. He's very open about his life and what he has gone through. He told me about the challenges he faced growing up and what it was like when he dropped out of university to run his first business, Woolpark, an online messaging board. Virgin asked me to speak at an event in London called the IPA, 2nd of June 2013 maybe. And I knew I needed to speak there about Woolpark, but I knew that I couldn't afford to get back. I couldn't afford to get there and back. I could get the mega bus there with six quid, but I couldn't get back. So um, I put on my little Primark shirt and tie that I borrowed off my flatmate. Which I'm still wearing today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I got on the mega bus and I went to London 
And um, yeah, I, I, I went to the conference, I spoke, I got all these investors rush up to me after and all this stuff. Um, and then I went to the bus station and I slept on the bench. And I waited till the morning, went to my sister's house um, and she gave me the money to get the bus, make a bus back to Manchester. But that whole phase of my life, it was just work, working in call centers, really bad call centers, selling like Facebook ads to people. Mm. Like, you, I don't think you're even allowed to call someone and sell them Facebook ads, like as an independent in like a small white box in the middle of the countryside, working night shifts in call centers, selling car insurance. It's almost full circle, it's kind of what you do now. Uh, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but that was just a really, really rough part of my life. And, and to be completely honest, I was. it sounds so gruesome and think about the things that I had to do in that moment, but. I was as happy then as I am now, and I'm happy now. And I think that's really important. And I think that's uh, one of the things I've come to learn about, um, like money in general and happiness. It doesn't. It didn't make me any happier. But fortunately, I was already happy. And I was, you know, and I viewed that moment of my life, all the struggles and all the hardship and all the eating crap and literally going into takeaways and hoping someone had left like some chicken bones on the side. And then if they had, I'd take it and I'd eat it. All of that part of my life, I. Um, I just saw it as a, a journey. That was no, that was no, there was no part of me that considered that to be the destination. And that's why I was so happy then, because it was just a part of my story. Later on in the interview, I asked Steve how he would describe himself, which is one of my favourite questions. I'm a perfectionist or I'm like a stickler for detail. Someone who likes to maintain and set the bar for what standards should look like. People around me would describe me as quite... The people very close to me will describe me as um, quite um, tough on small things. So like my PA or Dom will say that I'm really like really tough on small things, small details. Right, okay. Um, So I mean, next question actually is if we asked Dom, your co-founder, to describe you, what would he say? He would say, he would say, um, I've heard him describe me before. And he said... um, Steve cares so much about cares so much about the details. Very good sell. Very good at selling stuff. Um, he just under. This is what he said. He he said on an interview. I th- I think or I think he was drunk and he was talking to a girl I used to date and he called her to just like you know being very soppy and he said Stephen always knows how to act in every situation and that's why I admire him. Um, which I think is I, I I get that. I understand what he means there. Interesting. And I think that's probably one of the the things that has led me to where I am now is just knowing how to be in certain situations, whether that's within a pitch or, you know, or with my team members or if someone, I've always found that I'm I'm this quite adaptable jigsaw piece. Um, So I see everyone else in the world as a jigsaw piece and my job is to be the piece that fits. So you're like Play-Doh almost. Yeah, I think, you know, it's without, you're not trying to be fake, but there's various sides, yeah, to who you are and knowing which side to be at a certain time I think is important. Certain members of the team you have to be very, very hard on and very, very direct. Certain members of the team you can't do that because they will die if you yeah. do that. And yeah. knowing the different people and knowing how to get the best out of them. No one's ever left social chain. We started two years ago. We've got you know over 100 people that work within the company and no one's ever quit. And I think that's because we I, I spend a lot of time doing the small stuff and that's you know, giving them birthday presents myself and giving them a card. And, um, if they're, you know, they're broken up with their boyfriend, I'll go to their house and you know having like a, you know, their friend. You love to inspire people. Um, and you love to be creative in this world, but what is the thing tying this together? What What is your purpose on earth? Where do you see yourself in 20 years? Multiple purposes. I think I'm on this like, this never ending pursuit to prove to myself that I am what I think I am. And 
in terms of the world, like what I enjoy is building great stuff that impacts a lot of people um, positively. Um, and with my personal brand stuff, my, my, I'm trying to create a bigger platform for me to speak to people with whatever opinion I might have. Because I um, that kind of ties into my overall purpose, which is building great things that impact people positively. Um, I enjoy the building piece, the entrepreneurial piece and building something from nothing. And I enjoy the impact positively piece. And that's that. those are the two things I really do every day. Um, and money just tends to be the the currency for success in the world that I operate in. So we get more money, it means we're more successful at objective. That's like our KPI almost. It's not something we I care about. Like, don't care about getting more money. We, we I got to a point where I had lots of money and could do all the things. And, you know, so build, I think that my, my life will be focused on building great things um, and impacting people positively. And finally, uh, you've obviously been given a lot of advice on your journey on the way. So what is a piece of advice you could give to young listeners now? Okay, the best piece of advice, well, it's probably one of the things I really remember for people starting out is the importance of not believing your own bullshit. Sean Puri said this to me, who's the CEO of Bebo. When I, when I got to San Francisco, he said, the one rule we have here is just don't believe your own bullshit. That means listen to what the numbers are telling you, listen to what people are saying, listen to the you know the data and all those kind of things and be delusional because you'll need to be to get past the, the hard times where you should probably give up but just never but know you're delusional and don't believe you're in bullshit wow i think that's super interesting i haven't listened to this episode for well for years obviously and that was my first listen back and it's knowing stephen it's actually amazing to hear how consistent that vision is and how tied up that is with where he is today because He's very open about why he's building a personal brand, what that means to him, why that's important. And actually, that was the start of his unlock of I want to, you know, have conversations with more people and look where that insight took him and his platform and the opportunity to impact more lives. All those things do feel very consistent. And I think also... I think the thing that struck me the most as well is, is is taking on the advice that I think he actually still lives today. Again, obviously, as he's become more famous, more known, etc., you know, getting to speak to him directly is much more of a, a luxury, you know, only happens once or twice a year. But he's definitely still him. Um, he definitely does have a level head. He definitely doesn't actually have an outsized ego whatsoever. And the reason for these things is because um, I think he holds that true, right? Doesn't believe his own bullshit. Is on a constant journey and quest for greater self-awareness, greater authenticity. And I think is a really good example to other young entrepreneurs of focusing on what matters. And if you focus on those things, you attract great people around you. You have a great halo effect of things happening around you in life and great things do happen. And one of the things I always say to people is it's not all about you you tend to find that too much time ruminating on why you're important, why you matter and why the world revolves around you makes you unhappy. Whereas when you focus on why other people matter and how you can help them and how you can serve others, you find out that you're happy and other people are happy. Really, really, really interesting actually to listen back to someone who's so early in their journey um, and has so consistently stayed true to the path and reached dizzying heights already at such a young age. You know, he's 30 um, and already arguably one of the best known people in the whole of the UK. So more power to him. That is a great example of what a clear mission statement is and clarity about what you want to do in the world and consistency and patience compounding over time where that gets you.
If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Now, it has been really hard choosing these top moments because of all the inspiring guests like Steve that I've mentioned. There have been some brilliant business stories too. And one that really stands out to me is this next one with Lemonade founder Daniel Schreiber. In fact, we could have picked almost any moment from this conversation. It was that good. Lemonade is an insurance platform, but probably unlike any you've ever come across before. They floated on the New York Stock Exchange just four years after launching in 2016, more than doubling in valuation on the first day of trading. In my interview with Daniel, he told me about the extraordinary tactics they used to get their license when the regulator wasn't paying them any attention. It's a great example of startup execution that I'll never forget. So we had the basics, the user experience, the outline of what you said you saw and loved was ready pretty quickly. We kept adding to it, of course, you, you get you know the basics and then oftentimes you have to backfill a lot of the stuff that you cut corners on and you get the product debt and, and technical debt. But the license wasn't coming. And the thing with insurance is you can't beta test this stuff. You need a license and it needs to be a real product. You can't just launch it and, and hope for the best. You go to jail for that kind of thing. And the great state of New York was just ignoring our application. And I had an interesting moment where... I was sitting in an office in New York, 100 meters from the regulators who wouldn't meet with us even. And I got an emissary from 10 Downing Street. She had come to New York in search of companies that should really launch in the UK. And she said to me, Daniel, if New York's giving you a hard time, you'll be received with open arms in in London. Why don't you come? And so we developed a plan B, which was to launch in the UK. And I did come to London, and I was hosted in 10 Downing Street, which was a big deal for me. And I remember the pitch was a pretty compelling one, which is the United Kingdom is, you know, the the great 
a connector both to the United States and the gateway to Europe. And where insurance comes from? Scotland, if I'm not mistaken. And the seat of insurance, Lloyd's of London. It's one of the great financial centres of the world. And they said to me at the time, listen, the, the one thing next week, we've got this Brexit vote, but we'll just get beyond that and then all will be well. Famous last words. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I actually <laughs> forgot about Brexit. That, that's been and gone, right? So the... <laughs> Things didn't quite, David Cameron at the time was optimistic and it didn't quite play out the way he'd hoped. And then in the meantime, we did manage to get, there's a whole chapter in a book written by a guy called Bradley Tusk. The book is called The Fixer about how we had to work to get New York to take us seriously and ultimately to give us a license. But it was that was a near-death experience which ended well and we have a license and we've got a great relationship with our regulators. Um, but that was genuinely tough and the whole company could have kind of died before it began if if things hadn't worked out the way they did. What happens in something like that? So let's just say that you do want to launch an outrageously ambitious company where the government, you know, or financial institutions have to be involved. How do you turn them from not paying attention to you to paying attention? Like, Are there tactics? Is it turning up? Is it letter every single day? Is it like you mentioned a fixer? You know, is it like people that know people? Yeah, so we rather naively for the first six months or whatever it was, um, felt that this is just a legal bureaucratic process. You have to submit your paperwork and wait like good boys and girls and you'll get your response and then you'll back and forth. And we met uh, this guy, Bradley Tusk, who became an investor and an advisor. And he said, no, 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 this is all politics. This is not uh, formalities. This is politics. The insurance regulation reports to the governor and the governor is is an elected politician and you have to bring bring pressure to bear. And we felt at the time we had little to lose and everything to gain. And we spoke to the governor's office and the regulators and we said, listen, guys, we are going to launch. If you respond to our application, we weren't asking them to cut corners or to do anything untoward, just just to take us seriously, just to give us the time of day. And we basically said, you know, on this day, we've booked three speaking engagements, which I had. And we said, we're either going to speak about how New York is closed to business and to innovation, or we'll talk about how we're launching Lemonade. And it's your choice. And by the way, here's the full page ad that we're taking out at the cost of $100,000 in the New York Times. And this is what it looks like. And here's the tweet that Sequoia plans to issue. And here's the change.org campaign that they plan to launch. And balls in your court. This is the date. This is when it all happens. And a day before that date, I got a phone call from the regulator saying, we're, we're ready to engage with you. What a story. And I'd recommend listening to that whole episode because there are just some great business tips there. And, you know, if you want to hear an example of outside the box thinking, that is the 101 right there. Because what he's essentially saying is this is a multi-hundred year old category. We live in a modern world. There's technology, but is it enough just to apply technology? Is it enough just to apply speed? And his thesis here is no, it's not, because the underlying thing that changes everything for people is human behavior. So working in partnership with Dan Ariely, who is a very world-renowned behavioral economist, they basically completely changed the paradigm entirely, right? They've completely changed the reasons why you would or wouldn't want to make insurance claims and figured out the dynamic on both sides. So the incentives are all aligned so that things can be fairer, so that payouts can happen quicker. Um, I have to say, I'm just completely astonished by the innovative insight and execution. Um, If you go back and listen to that episode, you'll hear more on the execution side. But 
it's mind-blowing just to hear someone speak so innovatively about their angle and their idea and their approach. The pandemic was a really difficult time for many businesses, but one of the best stories I heard coming out of it is from an episode with Vivian Wong of Little Moons, which we recorded this year. Little Moons makes mochi ice cream, or as is I've learned since properly pronounced, mochi ice cream, a type of Japanese rice cake with an ice cream filling. As a massive fan of all things Japan, I was already a fan of the brand, so it was pretty exciting to get to talk to Viv. Now, after launching in 2012, the business grew steadily and surely for a decade. Then, just as the pandemic hit, their sales suddenly rocketed and the company went viral on TikTok. But after being hit by supply chain woes and Brexit, they had hardly any stock left to meet the demand. We didn't know back then that if you wore a mask and you washed your hands, it was controllable. You know, when we shut it down, it was almost like it could have been something like Ebola. You know, it's just you just don't know how it's being transmitted. So we just shut the factory down. We made that decision to do so before the government told told us to. um, We just said, look, let's just do it. Let's just keep everyone safe. Um, And then as we learned more about it, we um, we did bring people back because although we had some stock left, it was it was going it was draining quite quickly um, because we we'd gone viral on TikTok um, in Germany. So Germany took all of our stock um, and then Brexit hit that December. So it would really, people really pulling on our, on our, on our, um, you know, our stocks and stuff. So we had to bring people back into work. Um, And COVID was difficult. So our sales and marketing team could work from home because they were able to, but then the operations team was more difficult because we make everything by hand with a bit of machinery, but people have to stand quite close together to sort of dust the mochi to put it into packaging all of that sort of stuff so we had to rearrange the factory we had to get conveyor belts in we had to get loads of ppe in which was a lot more expensive um hits your margin and then everything was running out so we couldn't get cardboard um what else went wrong you know there were no no containers for us to to bring any rice flour in from thailand just anything that could go wrong could go wrong um and it just um i guess that put a lot of pressure on the business and then in january 2021 we went viral on tiktok um in the uk and that's when we started off on a on a really low baseline from stock because we we basically sent everything over to europe because we didn't know at the deadline on 31st of december how we were going to export things over so we just thought you know what let's just ship everything over there so we can we can supply it from from main from mainland europe um and so that 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 then brought on its own sort of challenges. Then we brought on someone from HR because our sales manager, you know, our head of sales was writing out all the furlough requests and things like that. And every, like I said, it, we were still quite scrappy at that point. Everyone was just helping it, helping to do whatever they could to, to get us through this, this period of uncertainty. How many people did you have? Um, what kind of revenue before the pandemic versus after, just so we get a sense of the growth that you've gone through over the last couple of years? I feel like it was about 7 million before the pandemic. And then that year we grew to 10. And then as TikTok hit, we grew to about 27. So quite, quite a lot, quite quickly. Yeah, quite a lot. Um, And so at 27 million now, like how, you know, how do you service that kind of supply when you're making something that that's kind of the bit with all these uncertainties, like how did you manage to do it? I mean, it, I feel like it was at great personal cost because honestly, I just didn't, I feel like I didn't sleep for two years. I just, I was just dying of anxiety, constant chronic anxiety from, you know, from, from every aspect. Um, 
And I guess it's your team. That's what it comes down to, the people in your business. So we had to bring on interims to who, who, who had a lot more experience than we could afford to employ full time to help um, shore up our supply chain, for example. Then operations, like how do you scale up an operation like that overnight? Um, you know, my current team didn't have the skills to do so. So we brought in an interim to, to, to help us. He usually helps turn around companies who are failing. But it's, I guess, similar emergency this is what we need to do to fix it type mentality. And so um, he came in and, and helped us upscale um, our team, put in different um, shifts, shift patterns, because we couldn't buy any more machines because no one was working. League time for machines was year, was like, you know, a year rather than months. Um, so we just had to bring in as much staff as we could working on different shifts, longer shifts. Um, and it was just, you know, I felt, I felt like, not a failure, but then having gone through it and, and spoken to a lot of suppliers, people in the business, you know, they've said, well, Unilever couldn't have kept up with that sort of growth. And I was like, really? That's that's great to hear because I would have thought some, you know, I, I thought it was my failing that we couldn't keep up with that level of growth. Um, but it was really nice to know that actually um, even big established businesses would have struggled with that, with that level of growth and demand and, and meeting it because, you know, um, Tesco's, everyone who was calling us, you, you can't get enough. People were writing to us saying you're withholding stock on purpose. You're trying to, you're just trying to make it scarce. And we were like, we, we really aren't. Like we're trying to make as much as we possibly can. Um, and so there was just a lot of pressure, just a lot of pressure from every single part. Like it just felt like the house was on fire every single day you turned up to work. It was an incredibly stressful time of year, well, time whole year for us. Growing big is something entrepreneurs dream of, but like Vivian said, it comes at a cost. Even when you scale and achieve your goal like an IPO, there are just more issues. Last year, I spoke to co-founder of Eve Sleep, Kuba Weeksharek. Eve Sleep actually announced in October 2022 they were going into administration and would be bought by Benson's for Beds. But that's not how this story began. Kuba started Eve Sleep in 2015 with his cousin Yash, and they grew explosively. Within just two years, they were valued at £140 million and IPO'd in record-breaking time. But the IPO wasn't what Kuba had dreamt of. Shortly afterwards, the share price started to fall. We were the kind of poster, the poster boys and girls of, of the startup world, you know, not only because of the float, but we kind of startup of the year, we were winning all these awards, then we floated the company. And there was a lot of interest in Eve anyway. We floated insanely early. And I, I guess the press and the markets were kind of waiting for us to fail. I, I do think there was a little bit of that. People was waiting for us to fail. Now, the other thing that happened is Simba, Casper, these guys who, when we were the lead up to IPO, which is long, by the way, you know, six to eight months, they were very young. By the time we IPO'd and, and a few months after IPO, they were now doing incredibly well. So all of that led to the share price just going. Vroom. I think the moment that it really tumbled was when Yash, who was a CEO, my cousin, was asked to leave the business. It was a real fall. I think it went from a pound to 30p. And then a, a few months later, it was down at 4p. The pack of cards came down, basically. Whose decision was it to have him leave? And what really happened? Like, why did this stuff happen? And why did Yash accept leaving? I don't want to go into too many exact details, but I can tell you broad brushstroke. I mean, I don't think it was handled very well. 
there, there was a lot of tension between us and the board anyway, right? Because what happens when, when you have a public company, you have to create a board. So before it was like, it felt like us and our mates on the board, because it was basically the VC, so we were really pally with it. It's a completely different proposition when you float a company. Rightly, Yash had the pressure of this public company now that the public had invested in and had bought shares in, and he had to, he had to make it go the right way rather than the wrong way. So there was a lot of very complicated tensions, really. It became really untenable, really, for him, I think, to stick around long term. He was asked to leave. Whether that was a good decision or not, I'm going to reserve judgment on this podcast. But it's certainly, I think, what sent the markets into a jitter. And certainly one thing I will say, for the record, is I think it was handled in- incredibly badly. And, and you know, with, with all of these things, what what the perception of the company is so important. You know, it's all smoke and mirrors, really, you know any company valuations are. But I think it's it's PR, it's perception. And I don't think, I think if you handle something like that badly, then it's going to cause a tumble. And, and that's what happened, basically. So what was it like for you? Because you got stuck, basically, in the company that you founded, but your best friend, your cousin, your co-founder, your compadre has just been fired. And you have to stay there. And what, put on a brave face? Be honest, what was going on with your mental health at the time? Like, how were you interacting and interfacing? It's a really interesting question. I think, I think it, look, I stayed because I wanted to stay. I mean, I could have walked at that point and, and it crossed my mind, obviously, you know, we'd built this thing together and well, not just us, I mean, with others as well, but, you know, it was a really difficult time. I chose to stay because I wanted to stay, but ultimately I stayed because I, I wanted to, because I loved the company still, a lot of the people I loved. I mean, the, the people at Eve were just incredible and I was a bit scared about leaving. I didn't I didn't really know what I would do. And I guess there was a little bit of me which didn't want to let people down as well. So yeah, it was it was a tough decision, but it, I, I kind of gave it a day. I did say to them, I, I need a day because this has all been a bit of a shock. I, I went to see Ash, make sure he was okay and had a chat to him and, and then kind of said, are you okay if I stick around? And he said, yeah, and I lasted another year. And then I resigned. <laughs> what made you resign? I realised that I was not, I was relatively in, ineffective at Eve at that point. Eve had outgrown me, if you like. Um, my strength wasn't running a public company uh, or being at a very senior position in the public company. I think I'd probably, about six months after Yash left, I'd hit rock bottom as well, you know, really rock bottom. I just kind of realised that it was either my health and my family or staying at Eve. So I'm, I made the right choice, you know, I resigned. What is rock bottom? It's pre- it was a pretty dark time, if I'm being honest. I mean, I, I, I don't want to put a label. I mean, I, I had definitely was having a nervous breakdown without a shadow of a doubt. I kind of lost who I was at that time. Who, you know, I, I'd lost all sense of direction. I, I couldn't get up in the morning. I, I, I found it really hard getting to work. I'd have panic attacks before going into work. This is the company that a year and a half earlier, I was skipping into work and just was so excited about everything. The world was our oyster. My family knew that I wasn't right. I wasn't the same. Sarah knew that, especially even my kids picked up on. I've got four kids. They picked up on it. Yeah, it was a really, it was a really difficult time. That's super interesting. Just listening back to uh, these clips on scaling, right? Because I've been there. Um, I've been there with scaling, not to this degree, but you know, with my last company, Grabble, we scaled before realistically we should have done. Had similar margin issues. Um, to Cuba, very loss-making, and in the end, the whole business imploded. The difference is 
we didn't really do this on a public stage, right? We weren't the youngest company to IPO. We didn't go through what I can only imagine to be, as he described as well, right? Mental health torment and the ordeal of being on the public stage and being written about by people and all of this kind of stuff because you dare to be the man in the arena and you dare greatly and you go for it, but you haven't necessarily done things at quite the right pace. And, you know, just comparing the journey which Vivian has gone through over COVID, which obviously was inflicted by a viral trend, which you can't necessarily predict at any point, happening at an extremely difficult, challenging time for operations. It's almost like the exact opposite example of struggling with scale, right? It's the building year over year, compounding slowly, becoming a really good business and expecting that that's always going to be your path and then suddenly hitting a massive growth curve you never expected and you never were prepared for and having to deal with it at one of the most challenging times over the last hundred years and figuring out how to do it just shows the kind of surprises ahead of you as entrepreneurs. You know, you can come up with all of the plans, you can come up with all of the theses, you can follow best practice and all of the things you're doing. You just can't predict the outside world and the outside forces of when things will strike gold. You just have to keep going. And this is actually one of the reasons why textbooks and business MBAs and all that stuff are kind of just fucking worthless, in my opinion. It's all about mindset. It's all about attitude. It's all about leadership. It's all about how you culturally embolden a team to deal with hiccups, to deal with mistakes, to deal with opportunities, to deal with growth. And none of that can really be learned in textbooks or schools. You kind of have to just cultivate that with a team and with the right energy. You know, actually just thinking exactly about the Kuba story, right? The £150 million valuation and on the stock market and, you know, the headlines at the time, right? The fastest ever UK company to IPO. It's worth nothing now. And actually, it's just reminded me of a recent episode we recorded with Misha Kaufman, who's the founder of Fiverr, also running another unicorn pretty sure he very eloquently said fuck valuations let's let's cut into that and see if i was right what did you say misha stop obsessing about fucking valuations because they mean shit they mean nothing because whatever your value that you're you're not worth it trust me obsess about structure right so people people have this huge ego about saying you know what what their valuation is how many companies do you know told the story of what they had to give to get that valuation. How many downside protections and, you know, ratchets and double deeps and vetoes and whatever. They don't tell that story. Obsess about that. Obsess about structure. Uh, valuation is not important. It's seriously not important. Um, and I think, I think that if, if you can, if you can, if you can create an old stru- a no structure, then it creates tremendous amount of alignment between yourself and your investors. And, and that is worth so much. If I look at, you know, if I look at our, our first investors, Guy Gamsu, Jonathan Kolber, I mean, these guys are now some of my best friends. Um, but they're still a part, they're on the board of the company. You know, it's, I mean, these are just incredible people that had alignment from day one with, with the the vision and the mission of the company and, and had the same stake, you know, in it. And, And so, so that, that is really important. 
Oh, wow. A real triple whammy of insights there. But I think, you know, if I was to have one takeaway that I wanted listeners to remember, it's not necessarily Cooper's mental health crisis. It's not probably uh, preparing for anything that might or might not happen to you from Viv. It's arguably got to be fuck valuations and focus on what's important. I think that there, I just think there's such an overemphasis caused by press and Twitter and the fact that you only see companies sharing all the good news and all the hype that forces other people to feel the pressure to do those things too. It's actually why I build in public at heights, right? Why I share the good, the bad, the ugly every month, because I don't want people to just experience what's going on in my business. The one time everything goes right or the one time everything goes wrong. I think consistency for that messy middle is far more authentic, far more experienced by all of us and far more important. So if you were to take one thing away, it's focus on the right things and fuck valuation. Structure is always going to be more important and the devil will always be in the detail. Trini Woodall is best known as one half of Trini and Susanna. And after her television career came to a halt, she had the idea of a personalised premium makeup product brand. She got an initial investment of $150,000, which got her going. But then that ran out. I'd run out of that money and I just thought... What have I got that I can sell? You know, I never bought a nice picture or had a, you know, a nice bit of jewellery. All my jewellery my grandmother left me, I'd had stolen about seven years ago. So I didn't have, you know, all I had was clothes. And I had accumulated a vast amount of clothes over the years because of doing all the TV shows. So I decided I'll do the sale. A friend of mine helped me price everything. I went on to Emily's list. I thought, I don't care who comes in my house. I just need to sell it. I need to raise 50 grand if I can. And I, in fact, over a week raised 60 grand. Over two weeks, actually, raised 60 grand. And that kept me going. You know, that money was like my lifesaver because I was so at that tipping point of being ready to present, ready to go and see investors. But there were a few more things I had to do. You know, that all probably sounds very alien to a random listener who's like, but if you're a super well-paid celebrity on TV, where the hell does all the money go? So where does where did all the money go? Like, why was that a whole personal issue? That's quite difficult for me to say because it would affect other people. But I, I did help people very close to me out with a lot of things. And... A lot of it went there. A lot of it went on being extravagant, you know, all those clothes, you know, giving myself a good budget, wanted to travel, just went, didn't have to check what the ticket price should be, that kind of stuff. Had a house, but had a big mortgage on it. So I wasn't in, I wasn't being prudent. I wasn't saying, let me just take, you know, this is what I'm earning. This is fantastic. This is more than I ever dreamt I would earn. And let me invest it properly. No, none of that. And I think that at the time, in my personal situation, the idea was perhaps that I would look after the present day and my partner would look after the future. There was a little bit of that, you know. Yeah, and so it's really interesting. And thank you for sharing. And do experiences like that have an impact on how you think today? Like, are you like considerably more prudent now based on that experience or, you know because it's difficult right now your business is scaling. So I'm like so interested in your perspective because you've got experience of a failed business, but also having and then having not. So I want to know what goes through your mind in the current day when you're having great success at Trini. Okay, so just to be really, this is 
being very clear because I think there's no point ever not being clear. I live with somebody who has a lovely home. I sold my home, so I have a lovely home. I pay for every single thing in my life apart from the lady who helps in the house and food. So everything else I pay for. When I started in London, I was on a very small salary. So things were really tight. When I sold my house, I had a little bit of money left that I put into paying Lila's school fees. So I put that aside. But I just didn't have much left. I got a big bill from the tax man from a few years before. So that took away even more. And I was, you know, in this position where things were really tight. And there I was in that very early stage of a business where you've got the funding, but you yourself, you know, so I kind of then for nine months didn't buy anything for myself. Then I did start to, but it would be Zara, which it sort of predominantly still is. You know, I'm always trying out skincare, which I buy myself, but now usually the company will buy and will look, you know, I'll do things like that. I started to pay myself a better salary last year, but I still don't own my own home. I still, you know, I have, you know, an article in Forbes last week saying hyper growth of European beauty company valuation of $250 million. Okay. And I have quite a lot of shares in this business. So, so on paper, I'm doing really well. And what I think is a hard thing for me, which now I've got to, Dan, is that for the first two years of Trinity London, because the way we wanted to strategically build it, we didn't have that kind of hyper growth in that first year. And so there were a lot of the investors like, "Mm, really? And I'd always felt I want to, I need that returning customer to be so powerful because they will amplify my whole business. And I don't believe I'm going to be doing a Glossier or a Casper. I want to do a different approach. And, you know, Blitzkrieg come out and all this kind of hyper growth, hyper growth. And now we are in that very aggressive growth. And whatever we spend, we get back immediately. So we're kind of like got quite a lot of cash in the bank. We're thinking, okay, what should we do with it? There will actually be long-term strategic things. We don't need to do a raise. We went into profitability last year. You know, we'll do 44 million by March on this year. So we're in a very strong position. So this is something that that is a candid conversation, but it's, you know, there are a lot of founders who, who are, will be in my position. They might be 30. I'm 57. I have a daughter. I don't own a home. And it's like, do I take money off the table now to just get some basic things that as a woman in my 50s, I kind of should have by now? Or do I say no, because I have a roof over my head and I'm very happy in my relationship and my daughter's fine. I paid for her school fees and I don't need I don't need that much. You know, I have still, you know, I'm in a bloody wardrobe talking to you. Okay. I have still that. And, you know, I don't need to go on big extravagant holiday. I've done so much in my life, Dan, that I don't need that wow fizz. I want to build an amazing business. So that's a position I'm at. There's an old saying, you don't know what goes on behind closed doors. It's normally said of marriages, but it's true of businesses and it's true of people. I think one of the things that I really enjoyed with this clip in general, and one thing I I would like listeners to know is I do always ask as difficult questions as I asked Trini that, you know, asking people directly about money and, you know, are they rich and do they have money and how do they spend money and all of these things. They're things that I do dare to ask, but as you might imagine, most people just tell me to fuck off um, as you would, right? As most people would. 
And I really respected the fact that Trini just, you know, had that conversation head on. She was willing and open to talk about it. And I think it's important because now the Trini everyone knows, you know, she's married to Charles Saatchi and she's obviously therefore got infinite money and she's running an extremely successful business. And these are all things that make up the persona, that make up the image we have in our minds about the person. When we assess and evaluate a person and quite often an entrepreneur or a celebrity, we make, whether we mean it or not, very quick assumptions about them as a human being based on our understanding of their wealth and what they have. And we know very little about their past and the times where they didn't have anything at all. And that's why I really enjoyed her actually opening up and shedding some light and, you know, removing the veil essentially on what the common preconceptions we'll have about her are, right? She's a human being. She's gone through ups, she's gone through downs. And I think that stuff makes her more human. It makes her more likable. It makes her ultimately relatable to the rest of us. And that's why personally, I become such a huge fan of Trini. She's awesome. Um, You know, she's become a friend ever since. Um, I couldn't possibly say nicer things about her too. Moments like this, where she's just willing to be herself and open up, really show her true character. You know, she talks as well about having failed businesses in the past and having to start again from scratch. And that stuff actually happening, you know, sort of later in her life as well. That stuff does whether you like it or not make you humble and it helps you have the right mindset to keep going and ultimately in entrepreneurship and in startups when you let as Stephen said earlier when we reflected in this episode you know about don't believe in your own bullshit you know it's fascinating here because you can just tell that you know Trini's had had that opportunity as well right she's learned not to believe her own bullshit she's learned that even with big status and big success and big awareness you know that doesn't actually create the financial stability that comes from an outcome. And that actually brings me on to our last guest for this 200th episode. Now, we like getting under the bonnet at Secret Leaders. We want to find out all the moments that made founders the people they are today. So I often start my conversations with guests by asking about their childhood, because it's when many of us develop the characteristics that define us later on as entrepreneurs. Now, the childhood experience of Joe Malone is one of the ones that stayed with me the most. I met Joe back in 2018 in one of her stores. Incidentally, the same location as her first job as a florist assistant when she was 16 years old. As brilliant and as wonderful as my parents were, I was the adult from the age of 11. So it was up to me to make sure there was a meal in the fridge, to make sure the rent was paid. And and we had gas and electric meters under the stairs. And I would save that we used to call them, you know, shilling or two bob. I would make sure if I ever found one, I would hide them in the house. So there was always gas or electric. I mean, just going back just a bit, first of all, my dad was a brilliant artist. So I would go and I loved going to the markets with him and going selling paintings. He was also a magician. So I was the magician's assistant. So I learned entertainment and he was also a huge gambler. So I knew how to read marked cards from the age of eight or nine. I could see what was in everyone's hand. But, you know, nothing is ever wasted in life. And as an entrepreneur, you think of that. Going back to my mum now, so it was an eclectic childhood and she was very, 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 very poorly. And I was the carer and had to look after her. Otherwise, she was going to be put into a hospital. My dad had disappeared with some pretty girl and my sister and I were going to be put into care and I managed to talk, I don't know how I did it, social services and everybody else around saying that there was an adult in the background and don't worry, they would appear any minute. Of course, they never did because there never was. And it was me. 
and I managed to keep us all together as a family. And I'd watched my mum make face creams over the years. And because I'm horribly dyslexic, my memory is a very important part of who I am. And I'd memorised everything that she'd done. So I was able to just take out all the plastic jugs and everything. I mean, still to this day, I don't use a formulation to ever make anything. And I would just sit there and make the face creams, put them into pots and go up to London and sell them. But um, I thought everybody lived like that. What age were you when you left school? 14, 15. I was about 14 and a half. I never finished school. I never did the last day. I don't ever remember doing a GCSE. In fact, I know I didn't. And I couldn't see the point in continuing to um, be at school because I knew how to make money and run a business. Jo set up Jo Malone in 1994. She sold the business five years later to Estee Lauder. Then, in 2006, she left the company. I was a 38-year-old woman. I had a two-year-old little little boy. And that night I was diagnosed with cancer and given, you know, under a year to live, nine months to live. And they told me to get my life in order. The, th- the first thing that I thought was not my business, which going back to your thing about entrepreneurs and motherhood, my first thought was my son and my husband. That was it. Would I ever see him grow up? Would I ever see him go to school? Would I ever see him go, you know, get married? But how did it change me? It It changed me in so many ways. It was funny, just after chemotherapy and coming out of the other end after surgery I mean I had so many complications I was in intensive care so I lost my hair and I was half a person for a very very long time and then after that time and I came out of it and I was told you know what go back reclaim your life go and live your life again and I didn't know what to reclaim and I just lost the person of who I was when I came back from cancer that was when I made the decision to leave Joe Malone So it was at that point that I thought, you know what, I'm not the same person. And it suddenly became a job to me and business. And I never had a job. I still to this day, I don't have a job. I love what I do. And that was why I really walked away. But then as I walked away from Jo Malone, I realised I'd made the biggest mistake of my life. That last day when I put the last lime basil and mandarin on the shelves and I turned that lock... I thought, what have you done? I made the biggest mistake of my life. Did you cry? What was the experience of leaving your brand? Like, I think it's a really interesting point to pick up on. Like, what is what is it like at the moment where you decide to walk away from something you built? I walked away from my best friend because my best friend was someone I spent day in, day out. It was a means of communication. It made me happy, fulfilled. It changed my life in so many ways. And I just had made the wrong call for my life. But it's such a good lesson because we're human beings. Making mistakes is part of life. Making mistakes in business is part of business. And if you think you're going to go through your life without one mistake, you're a fool. Because mistakes sometimes make us who we are. Now looking back, if I hadn't left, maybe I'd be in a completely different place right now. But I certainly wouldn't be doing this. I wouldn't be sitting at the cusp of and creating and and sort of doing some of the bravest things I've ever done in business right now. Wow. It's amazing just hearing about the depth of resilience. You know, resilience is always something that I like to talk about. I think it's the absolute key essential ingredient for entrepreneurs. And if you listen to inspiring people like Joe and you hear the kinds of things that you have to overcome and the kind of things just in business and in life that you have to deal with, I think it gives such great insight why everyone should be excited about running towards hard challenges. She is someone who so many people across the country look up to and her attitude is unflinching, right? The way that she speaks with such 
authenticity, reflection, kindness, and ultimately wisdom should be a source of inspiration for everyone to consider why it is important to build resilience. And the most exciting thing I think that founders can do is find ways in their life to confront resilient opportunities. That way, when the real hard shit hits the fan, you're ready for it, like Joe was. I also think hearing someone talk so openly about such a big moment being the biggest mistake of my life is so fascinating because what's interesting about Joe is she's aware of that, but she can't change the past. So it's happened. She realizes on reflection it was a mistake. She realizes that she wishes she'd never done it, but it's happened. So the only logical thing she can do is move forward. And she spent a lot of time making sure that she confronts that reality because the reality can never change. You know, I was much younger when I interviewed Joe and I started hearing about this and it really opened my eyes as well about the best attitude and the best way to confront something that you can't change, which in reality is everyone's past. We all have things that we regret. Hopefully not all of us yet have something that we would label the biggest mistake of my life. But I would imagine at some point all of us will face an opportunity that presents itself that we know was wrong and is the biggest mistake of our life. And we could either let that story continue to rule our future or we can let it go and accept it for what it is and move forward with our future. Um, Joe is a perfect example of someone that takes that latter approach, right? It's like I said earlier, she's got that sort of wisdom that I find very inspiring. So something else that I learned from her is, you know, dealing with letting go of regrets. Thank you so much for going on this journey down memory lane with me. You can find links to the episodes we've used in the show notes if you want to hear more. I hope you enjoy them as much as I have. Things you'll have hopefully learned. How to stay consistently true to your path and mission statement whilst not believing your own bullshit with Stephen Bartlett. How to think outside the box and redefine a whole industry by tapping into consumer psychology with Daniel Schreiber. How to handle the challenges of surprise growth in hard times with Vivian Wong from Little Moons. The pitfalls of hypergrowth when you put the needs of scaling your business ahead of your mental health and how that falls like a house of cards in a zero-sum game for all with Kuba Weekshirek from EVE. How to avoid obsessing over the wrong things and focus on the right ones with Misha Kaufman from Fiverr. How to stay humble, be vulnerable and start again with Trini Woodall. And how to build resilience and not be a victim of your greatest regrets and instead focus on your future with Joe Malone. That's all from me. Here's to the next 200. We'll be back next week with our normal episodes, learning from the world's best entrepreneurs. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta. This episode was produced by Ruth Edwards and brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolliman.